Jen, Jennifer Sr.'s presence. I keep calling her Jen as if I know her, which I don't, because you call her Jen, which I don't even know if you Did know I? her. You've been calling her Jen like throughout. Like your your first your first text message to me was Jen Sr. has a has a, a, a piece in the Atlantic. And I misread it as Jan Sr. And it was like, who is Jan Jr.? And so I feel like because I, I assumed Junior <laughs> Sr. was like the elder. So I was like, who is the elder Jan? And so I looked for a long time for the elder Jan in the Atlantic. Just, <laughs> Jan the elder. <laughs> I I don't know any Jennifer who goes by Jennifer. I think maybe that's Probably the only true, thing yeah. that we're. I don't know. No, no, Jen, so, so, I don't so, know so. Jen Senior, but I dollars the bucket. She goes by Jen. Smith and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. This is, I think, a pretty fun episode. It's definitely one I've been looking forward to for a good while now. My guest today is an uh, old friend and frequent topic of conversation on the podcast, Brian Platzer, the author of the novels Bedsty is Burning and The Body Politic, as well as most recently the nonfiction book Taking the Stress Out of Homework, along with Abby Freyrich. And so many different, so many articles on in the Atlantic or on the New York Times or, or the New Yorker. I, I uh, am not going to try to list them all, but he he writes a lot and he talks a lot. I think we had a really fun conversation today. The so uh, very very quickly before I get into all of that, I do want to thank uh, you all as as always for listening. And do go ahead and just take a moment right now if you have not had a chance yet to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, leave a rating if you can, leave a, a review even. All of that really helps other people hear about it. And if nothing else, take a moment sometime this week to recommend the show to somebody you think might like it. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please write to sleerickets at gmail.com. Enough housekeeping. I started this podcast partly because I felt there was such a distance, I thought, between the way that poetry got talked about in public, especially in interviews, on podcasts, in, uh, even in reviews, in uh, public panels, public readings. I thought there was such a huge difference between the way poetry got talked about in public and the way it got talked about in private by any poet I actually had ever bothered to sit down and have a conversation with. And so part of my goal in putting this silly show out there was to reproduce a little bit of the feeling of sitting down and having a drink with a writer and just talking honestly, which is to say a little bit carelessly, a little bit lazily, a little uh, with a little bit of gossip maybe, uh, but also with a nerdy devotion to technique and to the kinds of things that really that, that writers are really invested in. So that is so this week I Brian and I talked about a really good nonfiction essay, a long, really good nonfiction essay. It has several different titles because of the way the internet works, but it is in the Atlantic. It is by Jennifer Sr. And the magazine title of it was 20 Years Gone. I think on the 
website. It's also called a couple of other things, some of which involve the name Bobby McIlvaney, which is, uh, which is the, the, he's the central figure in the essay. So it is a, it is a serious essay. It's very well done. It deals with a family that lost a loved one on 9-11. It is sad and strange and complicated. And I certainly uh, hope you will go and read it. It may be helpful to read it before you listen, but you know, honestly, the goal is that you, you be able to listen either way. I say all this though, to let you know that there are very decorous and polite and gentle and hands-off ways to talk about writing like this in public. And that's fine. And that's very decent. But in private, there is a there is a thing worth talking about, even in the case of an essay about something so grave. And that is simply how the thing does what it does. And I have had, I cannot tell you how many conversations with writers that had a similar premise to this one, which is, hey, this was very well done. There's a lot here to admire. And yet, I don't quite understand why everyone is responding the way that they are. Something about this is not quite satisfying to me. Something about this bothers me. Something about this is getting at me. Can you help me figure out what the fuck that is? So Brian and I sat down and tried to answer that question because we both had a similar response to the essay. I say all this just so that you know, we are going to speak in pretty uh, direct terms about how the writing in the piece works. And if it's something that you don't want to hear people be irreverent about, then I totally understand and you probably ought to skip this one. But I think it's a lot of fun. I certainly had a lot of fun talking to Brian and I hope that you will enjoy it as well. Let's get to that right now. You So you sent me this, this article that I had not, I think I'd seen the headline or something. It's a, it's a very, very long, it's like 13,000 words that Jennifer senior has in the current uh, Atlantic monthly. It's, it sounds like I, I haven't seen the print issue, but it sounds like this is the cover. It is story. Yep. Uh, and it's in the magazine. I think it's called 20 years lost in the website. It's called grief and conspiracy 20 years after nine 11. Yeah. Another, an alternate title is what Bobby McElvain left behind. So they do tons of uh, A-B testing, essentially, for right. um, internet use, uh, sure. phone, website, et cetera, I, to see what I gets get the, the uh, I get the Trump country edit uh, in North Carolina. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so so it, it's, a, it's a, a long, kind of odd, meandering piece about the McIlvain or McIlvaney. I can't... The McIlvaney family, it's the Pennsylvania family. The uh, dad is a teacher. The mom, I forget. But the, they had this sort of beautiful star, brilliant basketball playing son, Bobby McIlvaney, who everybody loved. And he was really brilliant. And he went to Princeton. And he tragically was killed uh, on 9-11. Sort of happenstance like he was leaving the building after sort of setting up a business presentation in the 
cafe on the, at the World Trade Center, and he was killed walking down the street. It sounds like so it was a hor- horrible thing to happen. But then the the, the article. I don't is think the a, good folks at the windows in the world would like to be referred to as a cafe. It's just the only oh. first, the first fact fact check of the day. But yes, please continue. Is it a is it a, a fancy restaurant? It is. It was okay. before okay. the terrorists, yeah. or if you listen to Bobby's dad, somebody else right. uh, took it down. But. It, right. It I guess the, like the new the Newark New York Manhattan branch of Merrill Lynch probably didn't have their, their presentation <laughs> at like a, a, a an off a knockoff Starbucks bagged like, croissants. Yeah, I, that's that is a fancy restaurant um, where yeah. I live. But uh, yeah, so he 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 was killed. He was sort of a semi aspiring novelist and just sort of like a magical, uh, almost like a a manic pixie dream boy with an Ivy league degree that everybody loved. And it was very terrible. But then the, 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 the article is sort you know, t- talks about him some, but it's really mostly about the complicated sort of wrenching, embarrassing, weird patterns of grief of the people that he lived with. And also Jennifer seniors, like very at times excruciating assessment and like fact checking and evaluation of all of these people's manners of grief. So I found it like very interesting and well-written throughout. And it just like constantly, constantly rubbed me the wrong way also. Yes. Everything you just said is exactly right. So I I wanted to talk about this because I am at a, uh, just personally, a, a bit of a professional crossroads where I wrote a couple novels and then I spent the last year and a half in nonfiction land, um, actually primarily for The Atlantic, where I was writing a weekly column about education. And I had that same uh, conflicting mindset that you just began to articulate, where what I was reading seemed to me to be a very uh, touching piece in some ways and also a maddening one to read. And I, I, I found it perhaps a valuable prism through which to discuss just the utility of nonfiction in, in general, because all of, all of what you said is true, that it's sort of about this um, impossibly good cipher in, in the middle of, of everyone. You know, not only is he um, a, a handsome, young, white Princeton graduate, but he, constantly talks about how much he loves his uh, parents and girlfriend. Also in an aside, he like schooled Kobe Bryant when they were both high school (laughs) basketball players. This is Kobe Bryant who left high school basketball to go and become an all-star immediately in the NBA (laughs) right out of high school. So it's like he is this, this dead kid is perfect in, in every single way. And seeing um, how Jennifer senior takes this story and makes it about how the child died, how uh, there are various ways to grieve. Um, And I I left thinking like, well, this is fascinating, but I'm not quite sure what Jennifer Senior's primary goal was, is is what happened when I read it. And then I turned on the the Twitter machine and it was um, lauded in a way that uh, no piece of nonfiction that I've read in the last year or so had been lauded, you know, as, as great reporting and moving and, and made me uh, cry with, with empathy and, and warmth. And I, I was just trying to figure out what it is about this type of writing, about this piece specifically that went through Twitter, which just, just exists to trash everything, you know, as, as, as 
this perfect example of the form, but that sit that that sat a little bit wrongly with me. I, I wanted to to discuss with you whether my reaction to it was more about me or more about the form itself. Um, how to do nonfiction and sort of the value of a piece being true or not, which I've been, you know, fighting with. And then the the act of writing it, because Jennifer Senior not only um, is a friend of the family's, which gives her a certain narrative of authority and I, I think sympathy from the, the writer, but she also uses language that draws attention to itself in a very uh, technically interesting way in my mind. So I, there's just a lot of issues that, that I've been thinking about as I realized I am definitely a novelist and not a, a writer of, of nonfiction, self-help about education and, uh, and how to help your kid take the stress out of, out of homework. Um, and, and I wanted to discuss with you a similar depth of thought, um, just whether this was more about the piece, more about me, the value behind the piece, why the piece received such a wonderful um, you know, audience, uh, et cetera. It, uh, you did mention in whatever text message or email that you, you thought it, it made you think about the boundaries of nonfiction and the novel. And that it may have, I mean, that may have just sort of uh, affected how I approached it because I kept having this thought throughout, which was, I mean, first of all, like in terms of novels, it reminded the two that it really, really reminded me of were uh, The Lovely Bones and A Prayer for Owen Meany. But like in terms of the kind of the very intimate portrait of like the family's crumbling, falling apart, desperately trying to respond to this death, as well as uh, just the the retrospective magic of this dead boy. But I, the thought I kept having throughout the article was like, if this were a novel, it would be terrific. Exactly. That's exactly the thought I had. And, and that's what I tried to think about the value of nonfiction because people responded to it with the, the type of rapture that I, I don't know whether they would have if it had been a novel. And that to me is the opposite response that I had while reading. I shared your response where I, I so desperately wanted to get into what was actually going on in the minds of these characters, these human beings, these real people, as opposed to what we have in nonfiction land, which is uh, on one hand, what they say, you know, which to me is is always less interesting than what people think, you know, and sometimes the contrast between what they say and what they think can be interesting. But but what people say is um, one very small element of their psychology that interests me less than what novelists have access to, you know, which is the actual um, thought pattern of, of these people. So we have access to that. And on the other hand, we have access to Jennifer Senior's um, analysis of the situation. And I think that both what is said and um, her analysis are valuable, but, but I think that both, um, at least to my read of this piece, are, are lacking in terms of, it, it's funny, you thought of far better um, analogs than I did. <laughs> I, I, haven't, I haven't read either of them in, in a couple decades now, but I, I was thinking about, you know, you mentioned uh, the corrections a couple episodes ago. I, I was thinking of of freedom, not not because it has anything to do with this book, but 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 Franzen gets into the mom's head in that book, uh, the, the sort of housewife character, in a in a way that, God, if I had access into what was actually going on inside Bobby's mom's mind, it would be, I mean, I, I, it it would be extraordinary whether the 
you know, she acknowledges her own jealousy towards the end and doesn't quite have access to it in the beginning of this piece. And again, that temporal trick that Jennifer Sr. plays, I think is, is um, expert on a craft level because she holds back knowledge of what the mom eventually thinks in the beginning when she introduces us to the mom. But if we could be inside her head during these therapy groups and when she's first finding out about her son's missing and then death, and then when she comes to terms with the ex-fiance, et cetera, there is gold in that. There, there's real psychological insight that would necessarily be part of that character as opposed to what we get, which is a platitudinous cliche, right? We, we, we get the, the mom saying things that people say about dead people. And to me, that is so much less compelling. The other example I thought of is, is a lesser um, discussed work now, but I really think a masterpiece by Kerouac of all people, a book called Visions of Gerard, which is essentially a fictionalized version of him um, mourning uh, his too good to be true, but apparently that good and pretty true uh, younger brother who dies as a, as a child. And again, we have a, a narrator who is so overcome with grief um, that we are able to wallow in that grief with him, which is a, as powerful a, a, a narrative voice as I've, as I've read. But Jennifer Sr. can't do that. She's writing a uh, nonfiction piece for The Atlantic. And of course she can't get into the head of these characters because they're real people. And to, to me, what I felt was lacking in the same way you did, um, I was surprised, maybe foolishly surprised, but surprised to see was the opposite response of most people who read it, who were just overwhelmed by, again, the, the quality of reporting, the, the, the way that Jennifer Sr. got to the truth behind these, you know, um, miseries or behind these, uh, these devastations that, that fascinated me and that caught me off guard. And, and I, I don't really know what the word reporting means in, in, in the way that it was uh, celebrated. You know, part of it is I think that she fact-checked these people in mourning and found that some of what they had said wasn't um, as they remembered it as being, and, and that, that seemed to be a, a sort of reporting coup in the mind of, of a lot of readers. To me, it, it sort of goes without saying that people whose kid died 20 years ago are gonna misremember certain details, but maybe that's, that's cynical on my part, but anyway. The two main, so there, there's, there's McElvaney's dad, his mom. So the dad is Bob Sr., the mom is Helen, and then the, the, the almost fiance, he was just about to propose to uh, Jen, are the, the kind of the, the, the three principal mourners. Really, it's, it's mostly about the, the parents. And there are a lot of, like, there's a lot of dysfunction and like reversals and misunderstandings. And, and I guess Jeff, the brother, is the one with sort of the, the most whole elbow-free journey. But there, there are kind of twin narrative mysteries that this was like it felt I mean it was very telegraphed like there's there's this thing that everybody remembers Bobby saying but nobody remembers from where which is life loves on that they all they all cling to and they love it and it seems I like mean, a, not only a they cling thing. to it the right. dad tattoos the dad it on tattoos his body. It. The mom wears the mom a bracelet. Wears it as like an amulet. Like yeah. it's, and again I the way I talk about things is with this sort of sarcastic dismissive bent. Um this happens to be a lovely piece of nonfiction, which all of your listeners should read. It's sort of yeah. silly that they're getting our cynical take of it before perhaps reading it, because our cynical take, or maybe I should use the singular, my cynical <laughs> take on this, um, 
is like doesn't deserve to be taken as seriously as anything we're actually discussing, including the lives of these real people or the writing of this like very impressive piece of reporting in some ways. Um, I am more reacting in surprise to the thrill with which everybody else in America who read this reacted to it. So this is a, a double meta conversation as opposed to the actual way your listener should spend their time, which is reading this article for themselves and thinking about these humans who lost this wonderful person. But continue. Well, the, yeah, they're already listening to a podcast. So they, we know they're wasting their time. We know, yeah, we know they've already <laughs> made bad decisions about that. I, I feel sl slightly more, I mean, I, maybe I'm, I feel slightly more cynical only in that it felt cynical a little bit what Jennifer Sr. was doing. Like, I feel not at all cynical about these people and their dead son. Her treatment of that story and their experience feels a little bit, the, the piece that actually it reminded me of in some ways was a piece from several years ago that Katie Waldman published about her anorexic sister that felt, uh, I think it was in Slate, but it, it was... Also, uh, I think lauded and, and people talked about how important it was to tell this truth about it. Reading it, it felt very much just like a, a like successful media elite kid dishing on her sick sister. Uh, and, and this is not that grotesque, but it, it, like... There are there are things that are subtly there's like a subtle craft to the story, but then there's also the I mean these sort of double cliffhanger with like nobody knows where life loves on comes from. It turns out that that comes uh, from from this diary, and it's actually a, a an error. They read it they're reading it wrong. Which Jen Senior like <laughs> she's she says she feels terrible pointing it out, but she feels great pointing it out. She loves right. Out. I mean it is oh, it is no. a massive get. She even includes. <sighs> The, 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 the thrill, editor, the the thrill editor's with response. which she sends it to the editor. I, so, I mean, but, but, but you are pointing to a, a, I think you're pointing to something inherent in writing compelling nonfiction, as opposed to something about this piece, where in successful nonfiction, you are manipulating real things that happened into an artificial form to create emotions or give thrill or, you know, argue an opinion to a, a reader. So you, you, are, you are inherently taking the raw material of real human beings and putting it into an artifice, right? So like you talk, you, you said you're, you feel that Jen, uh, Jennifer, Senior was being cynical in writing it. And I, I would love to parse that out, whether there's really any difference between a cynical author of long form nonfiction and a talented, successful, practiced, craft focus practitioner of long form nonfiction. Right. I mean, the difference is that you are, uh, that. You can be cynical without being all of those other good things, <laughs> like, right? Like she's, I, I, yeah, I think it may it may be that there's there is a necessary cynicism to it, but I think it feels a little bit different in this case, partly because all of the events are so private and intimate, and she approaches. So the, one of the things that sort of sort of drove me crazy. I'm not exactly sure how to like how what angle to get at this from is that she she points out and tweaks and fact checks and questions all of these people's responses 
in a way that like acknowledges her intimacy. She said, says at one point, like, oh, I, you know, Helen's the kind of person who will spend time picking out silly glasses with you at the store. She did that with me when we were both visiting. So she she acknowledges that she has this this inside uh, look at the family, but then her the the perspective of of the the fact checking perspective that she brings to the story seems implicitly to be the correct objective view. Whereas, so the question of objectivity yeah. is is fascinating and exactly right. And I think that one of the reasons why she's so appealing to us, uh, to the reader as a narrator, is because she doesn't pretend objectivity. And I think that as readers right now, one of the things that we like least in a writer is somebody who pretends objectivity, because I think that as readers, we have been, whether because of the Iraq war or all the changing, um, you know, coronavirus certainties or whatever it is, I, I think, you know, whether for the last 5,000 years or the last 20 minutes, the idea of an author coming in as an objective, certain voice is intolerable to us. So her putting those cards on the table and saying, I'm not pretending objectivity. And you see, she pushes the language here. So does, she doesn't only write here, I should note that I know the McIlvaney family. She, she goes one step further. She says, here, I should note that I know and love the McIlvaney family, which is, you know, sort of doubling down on that sense of, I acknowledge I'm not objective here. Um, and what she then does is prizes objectivity um, above all else in her reporting. So she, she pulls this, this masterful trick where she's like, listen, not only is this a good story, but it's a story that broke my heart where she telling the story of someone she didn't know, I think, just like telling the story of somebody else's anorexia who, who's outside your family might not be as appealing in your analog. Again, I haven't read that piece, so I'm not sure. But I think that she benefits twofold. One, she benefits by she suffered from the loss of this kid. So therefore, her taking advantage of it in this long form piece of nonfiction journalism, I think the reader is less willing to criticize. But she also takes advantage of it by saying, listen, I might be um, subjective here. I love these people. Now let me tell you how deeply flawed they are. So it doesn't feel like she is attacking anyone. It feels like she is suffering through the need to tell this story um, in a way that a objective journalist, um, you know, would have to do more nakedly. I, I kept imagining, and so for, as I said earlier, I kept imagining this was a novel, but I also kept imagining sort of two alternative versions of it as a nonfiction piece. And it may be that this is, this reveals my taste or my prejudice, just my out of touchness. Like I, I, I imagine like one version, and maybe this is really more the novel version where she just let the errors and the, so the father becomes a, a hardcore nine 11 truther who becomes, he's actually like sort of a, as she and the, the wife point out at one point, he's sort of a superstar in the the strange world of 9-11 truthers where he, he travels and he does these interviews and he does, he's like done nothing but research on the the uh, the peculiar facts of the, the the however many minutes during the the crisis, you know, during the total the collapse and everything at, at the World Trade Center. Uh, and the the mother has has gone into a, a much less exotic kind of uh, 
denial for a while that then it seemed to be something a little bit more healthy. The the girlfriend, the dad gave the girlfriend the very last, Bobby took, kept an insane number of diaries and novels and like just this giant stack of all of his papers. So when he died, there were all these books bound and otherwise of just all of his writings. He, the dad happened to give the girlfriend the very, very last of these. And then the girlfriend inexplicably yes. refuses to let the mother even have excerpts from that, even like photocopies or like transcriptions of it. Totally, I mean, crazily for 20 years, won't the mother goes insane, demanding or begging for this. The girlfriend won't let her see whatever these 17 pages are. She finally lets Jennifer Sr. see them. But throughout this, uh, Jennifer Sr. jumps in mostly to, she comes down really hard on the dad, I think, and like fact checks the dad a lot and asks to me, there are two questions she asks that are fucking insane. One is, that she feels, she says, I asked, I, I finally got up the nerve to ask Bob Sr. the, the obvious question, which yep. was, which was, how are you not like the people who stormed the Capitol, demanded, you know, uh, claiming that Trump's, uh, Trump had, the, the Joe Biden had stolen the election, which is an insane question that was not the obvious question to anybody except her, to my mind. And the other thing she says is, she, she asked Helen the obvious question, which is, how have you not divorced Bob Sr.? And I think I kept imagining like a version of this story where there were just no fact-checking questions from Jen Senior, where there was just the people's weird, flawed grief happening and just presented nakedly. And then another version where where we got to see Jen Senior also be flawed and wrong in some way as a real character. And instead it, we get just the, she says, I love them. And I felt awkward asking them these obvious righteously journalistic questions, but at no point is she ever, does she ever really step on stage as a, as anything other than a kind of a, a, an all seeing chorus. And when she does, she hides behind rhetorical questions. So we have this passage, which is the closest she gets to pushing the question of how Bobby's mom could live with a man who not only is he a celebrity in the, um, 9-11 was an inside job community. And parenthetically, that community tweeted out this article as well saying, look at us and our, our uh, Bob Sr. finally telling everybody that, you know, architecturally it would have been impossible for the planes to take down this, right. th the building. Um, but what Jennifer Sr. does here is she lets rhetorical questions um, suggest the argument for her. So she writes, you know what radical acceptance is? Living with a husband who has dedicated his life to spreading the word that the United States deliberately orchestrated the collapse of the World Trade Center and then conspired to cover it up. Forget all the chipper advice columns about how to get along again, I put in the again, with your Trump-loving uncle at Thanksgiving. Um, how do you get on in your decades-long marriage after your son has died and your spouse wakes up each morning livid as an open wound and determined to expose the truth? I, I, I'd love to hear the answer to that question. That would be a hell of a, a, a novel, right? Or a, a work of nonfiction or something. I mean, how, how, how does that work? Because, I mean, and she, her answer is like, you know what? She remembers when they played catch in the house, you know, or like when, when Bobby... Was a, when Bob was a good dad or like no one else will know what it was like to, to lose a son, um, which is true. Uh, I guess within their marriage, they're the only two who know what, what that's like. I, but it, it is this world of leading us to 
the question that needs to be answered. And I think because of the nature of being edited by the, Atla uh, by the Atlantic, not being able to answer the questions, you know, because nobody, nobody knows those answers. And I, I, I wonder whether that is part of the reason why it has resonated so broadly now that we are in a moment of, of such grief and loss and uncertainty that, that leaving these as rhetorical questions and saying things like, you know, ending with cliches like, you know, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved, you know, basically uh, the, the mom hangs out with this group of, I think all women, perhaps all parents who have all lost kids and in a thought experiment, we don't actually see it play out, but in a thought experiment, the mom asks herself if she were to ask everybody in that group whether they all would have preferred never to have had a son or whether to have had a son who then died, what would they have said? In her hypothetical, they all would have said they would have preferred to have a kid who then gets killed. Um, that is sort of touching in, in the way platitudes about death can be when you are surrounded by death as an individual or, or as a culture, but it's not intellectually satisfying. It's, it's, not, it's not meaningful in, in, any, in any real way, in a way that perhaps a novel could have gotten into those moments where she said, I wish I never had this kid, like, which to me is, is almost implied in the question itself, that if there weren't moments where she thought, God, my life would be easier and I'd still be married to a normal man if I never had this kid, she wouldn't be asking the hypothetical to begin with. So, so to me, a, a more honest analysis of what these people are all going through would have required either more self-knowledge by the individuals, which I think is too much to ask when it comes to somebody whose life is stunted by the death of a of a, of a perfect son, or more um, imagination on, on behalf of the writer in a way that this form does not allow. One of the truisms about novelists or anybody who writes uh, stories about fictional characters is that you, you have to both love your characters and be heartless with them, be willing to, to do and show things in a really awful and merciless way to characters that you're also really deeply invested in, which is part of what makes novels moving. And it felt like, so part of what, part of what frustrated me about, I think reading it is that I kept, I kept finding myself, it seemed in, in the, in the like hierarchy of, of, uh, of correct grieving, there's like Jeff, who's like sort of so well adjusted as to be like, not really a story. And so she, as you said, she saves him for the end to be a resolution. And there's, you know, Jen, who is like, has this like moment that's misguided, you know, but, but basically understandable. And then the mother who's very complicated, but warm and, and loving. And then the dad who really, really get, I mean, get, gets, in some ways gets the short end of the stick, but in another way, like the dad is the character who feels most truthfully rendered because she is a little bit merciless with him. But I, I think you, you, as you're saying, like she's, she's not quite willing to, so another thing that this this all reminded me of that was was weirdly this review that William Logan wrote of a a book of poetry. Thomas James was this American poet who wrote this one book of poetry decades ago and then killed himself at twenty seven, which I think was the same age Bobby McElvaney was. And and Logan 
having no rights in this matter, neither father nor lover, like uh, or like um, uh, Rutke, he he's able to be cruel in a way about James that that would be impossible otherwise. He says it's no use exaggerating what Thomas James was a talent only half born and that half, not quite enough for him to be remembered. And, and that, I, I mean, I remember it being just like a really horrible, cruel line in the review, but then reading this piece, it felt like a thing that it almost would have been more human and merciful to say at some point, because it, instead there's the, there's the appearance throughout of a, almost like a compassionate objectivity, an invested personal objectivity, you know, but also a sort of a condescending treatment with kid gloves throughout. Right. It's a, it's a, uh, a kindness that the facts she presents do not merit, but the emotional tenor of the piece requires. And I think that that is where uh, she can, rightfully be accused of cynicism in the way that you did before. There are a couple of books, which I can't recommend because both of them are like over 750 pages long, but they're, they're both novels that attempt to do what, um, what we're talking about, which is get into the, the mind of the villain um, and tell a fictionalized story of a true or true-ish character. So, both of them received wildly mixed reviews. One of them is a French historical novel called The Kindly Ones um, by Jonathan Littell, uh, which gets into the mind and tells the story of a Nazi henchman, uh, essentially, and sort of how he rationalizes and emotionally experiences um, murdering all these Jews in the Holocaust and then escaping. And I, I think that's a, a masterpiece of, of psychological imagination. And another one is a book called uh, Thomas Jefferson, a novel also called Thomas Jefferson Dreams of uh, Sally Hemings, I, I believe. And we are similarly in Thomas Jefferson's mind through much of his courtship um, slash rape of, of his slave. And in both those books, there are moments of almost surrealism because of the impossibility of being in the mind of characters who are so vicious and yet, you know, protagonists in, in their own stories. But I, I, I feel a, a hunger in me come out when I'm reading a, a piece like this for those exercises in, in imagination and seeing it in Jennifer Senior, but seeing her boxed in by the, the, the form I think it was one of the, the greatest tensions um, I had in reading it as well. But something else I, I wanted to, to ask you about is the more I thought about this, the more I, I realized that I think for maybe my whole nonfiction reading life, the more I know about the subject of a piece, the more the piece seems full of half-truths and lies. If I read about what happens in Afghanistan, it seems like totally objective, straightforward, good reporting. You know, God bless the, the Times reporters who are risking their life and telling you what's happening in Afghanistan. Whereas if I read somebody's account of my neighborhood in Bed-Stuy going through gentrification, my attitude is only like, well, that's not true. Like, that's not really what's happening between neighbors and the restaurants. Or like, I went to this 
dopey, swanky, super expensive private school in, in, uh, for high school in, in, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And at the time, New York Magazine, I guess they saw that these issues sold, but it was like literally every year they would put out their, this is what's going on in New York City fancy private schools now. And like one year it's like, all the girls are lesbians, you know? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, I, there are a lot of girls here and most of them would aren't gay, you, you know? Or, or, or like the year after that, everybody's being mugged, you know? And it's like, <laughs> oh, look at these rich people. Like, can you believe it? They're all being mugged, you know? And it's like, well, I, no, we're not, we're not being mugged. And I, I just wonder whether like, there's something about this piece that is uncomfortably on the border of, of that, where it's like, I didn't have a family member die in 9-11, but I do have people who are close to me who had friends and family die in, in 9-11. And reading this piece, I, I know just enough about sort of the, the Ivy League world and people who have lost loved ones and... Um, what it's like to be in New York City at this time and what the uncertainty and then pain and, and grieving is like. That, like, I know just enough about this that I am appalled by it. And as a writer of nonfiction myself, the, the cruelest um, emails I get are always, about sub are always from subject experts. So what, what I've written the most about in my nonfiction lives have been um, neurological disorders because I, I myself suffer from a undiagnosable neurological disorder and education because I'm a, I'm a teacher and have thought a lot about this and done a lot of reading, you know, into it. And, you know, the, the vast majority of re responses I get are positive saying, thank you for bringing this to more people's attention. You know, I also suffer in this way. And although it's not, you know, exactly the same, I was so excited to read somebody having, you know, a similar experience or, um, you know, my kid goes to school and thank you. This is an interesting way to think about a predicament that, that we're, that we're approaching, but where the real vitriol comes from, uh, is from neurologists who say like, no, like you're spreading misinformation or from, um, you know, fellow teachers who say like, if you ever did that in a real classroom, you'd be ruining the lives of children. Now, like I, I've spoken in researching these neurological disorders to hundreds of neurologists, and I know that they have various opinions on these issues. And then it's my job as the guy who gets paid $250 by the New York Times to like make this into a coherent argument or an understanding of what's going on in this world of difficult to explain neurological disorders, or as the guy who's trying to explain like how to get your kid through going back to school um, for the Atlantic, like I've spoken to all these teachers and I try to get, get parents decent advice, but there is a sense of when the neurologists and teachers are scolding me for my work that I, I sort of empathize with them because they don't want to see somebody else talk about their areas of, of expertise in this formal public way because they feel like they could be doing it and they could be doing it better. And, and I wonder whether that's just like a real problem with nonfiction that, that, that we have all of this raw material as writers of nonfiction, we have to bring it into 750 words or 50,000 words, you know, however long this Jennifer Senior piece is. And inherently we just make decisions and those decisions aren't any more accurate or true than other decisions we could make. It's just ways of telling this story. And for 
critics of criticism like you and me, we are made crazy by that because we said like, I see what you're doing, Jennifer Senior. Like you yeah. save the kid who survives until the end in order to provide uh, a good feeling or I see what you're doing. You knew that Life Loves On wasn't accurate when you started writing it, but you save that to the end as a way to, you know, provide a little gift to the reader. But like, that's not a criticism that we see what she's doing. That's just using the tools of the form. And I think that's why nonfiction isn't as satisfying to me as fiction, because it is less true. And I'm an asshole for finishing like that, because obviously it's not less true. And it's exactly one of those squiddleisms that you talked about in the last episode. The thing. Oh yeah. Martin Bailey. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Deepities. Deepities. The squiddleism. I, I just don't, I, I think that that nonfiction has to follow these rules and has to be more artificial than good fiction. Yeah, and, th and there's since it was like Philip Roth in the '60s wrote a thing about how reality was outpacing fiction, and there've been a million a million pieces since then about how reality TV or re you know like reality news writing uh, is, is it has begun to make fiction writing obsolete because we either we sort of hunger for the real or realish thing or uh or reality is is wilder and crazier and more inventive than any novelist's imagination i i do wonder about i wonder about like because I, I did think of your so your second novel body politic is a is a is a new york novel dealing with with about like the the intimate lives of the circle of friends dealing with public and private trauma it's it's mostly it's like personal trauma there's some terrible things that happen and then it's the the election of trump that's not a 911 novel but it but it has a little bit of like the the shadow of like a big public disaster and it's in New and York. the four friends meet immediately after 911 and that's right that's in right in their beginning of their friendship they sort of touch upon 911 as one of the aspects that bring them together and then a counterpoint to the uh, Trump election. Right. That's, that is, that's right. Yeah. I forgot about that. So it is, is, I wonder if like part of my resistance to or, or resentment of this piece is a writerly irritation at, is there, is there like a, the, you said people responded to this with a, a warmth and approval that you can't imagine attending a, the, the, you know, the publication of a novel, is there a, do you feel like a, a, a suspicion of, or a worry about nonfiction of this kind displacing like fiction doing this kind of job? Like, is that like, is that part of the, what is no, that part because of why I feel so like, irritated by I, it? Or? I feel like they've always lived, um, you know, in, in parallel. Uh, I, I think that the idea of anybody saying this historical moment will fundamentally change art is yeah, yeah. It's sort of dopey, you know, because like why this historical moment as opposed to, you know, discovering the new world or, or like inventing yeah. fire. Like it just doesn't make any sense. Um, my response, I, I think, will, will be less helpful and take a, a further step back, which is that we fetishize the truth. I, I think it's, it's part of the reason mm. why American men don't read um, literary fiction. They read biographies and history. I, I think that people want to feel as though they're learning. People want to feel as though when they're reading, because it takes some effort, they maybe because it takes some effort or maybe just because they, they wish they had taken school more seriously. I, I think that people want to feel as though they are making good use of their reading time. 
and learning facts that they can then present conversationally or that can help them reorder their vision of the world is valuable. Whereas looking through the secret thoughts of fake people is, um, you know, tantamount to gossip. It's, it's, it's yeah. not valuable in that same way. And, and I find gossip far more interesting than fact. Like I, I'm, I'm willing to talk about why people do stuff and what the secret lives of my friends are forever. I, I just find that, that that's far more a compelling way that, that, that speaks to what makes human being human far better than just like the biography of, of you know, our, our founding fathers, which seems to be, you know, the, I, I said, we, we fetishize the truth. It's the same argument about fetishizing the, the original American, you know, founding fathers. We, we as a, a culture, scratch that, we as a culture, you can say anything you want after that. Um, I have seen a lot of people, including my now 40-year-old friends and my dad and a lot of other people I know who have read a little bit of fiction in the past or in college or think of themselves as readers move entirely to nonfiction because I think there's the misconception that nonfiction has a value in and of itself, whereas fiction is just for pleasure. Yeah. And that's the 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 again, I don't know how real this is, but the old observation that people would make about how fiction was, was initially almost like a, a female innovation that it was right. It's like what ladies out. would do in their drawing room between harpsichord lessons. Like it, it would, it, we, we think of it as, you know, people say like, you think violent video games are bad. People say the same thing about novels back in the day, which like, who knows if that's true or not. Every, everything becomes apocryphal when, when you tell comparison stories like that historically. But I, uh, it, it is like novels are gossipy nonsense, whereas like the truth matters more. Like, but I mean- I, Yeah, I, though, I mean, though, though like, like my dad reading the Hamilton biography is, it's not like that actually supplies him with any information that's like, it's really important that it's true that he that can then apply to the world. Like it's, it's, also, it's also gossipy entertainment. Right. In the same way that everything um, by Malcolm Gladwell is entertaining oh, yeah. under the guise of truth. And those are the, 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 the nonfiction books that, again, are, are just truly enough, that just have enough science in them and yeah. just have enough aspect that these uh, popular science, again, it's easy to dismiss popular science because like it, it, you, you read it, one of these books and either it resonates with you or it is clear that half of it is unquestionably true like why would you bother making that point and the other half is like probably wrong so why would you bother making that point but the combination in the right form you know let's malcolm gladwell say that if you look at something and you're an expert then you know it kind of well which like is obviously true but like obviously false and who cares i i, I think that it is it feels to most readers that if you read a book by Malcolm Gladwell, you have learned something about the way the brain works. And if you read the biography of Hamilton, you have learned something about the way America works. And I disagree. <laughs> there is a way of feeling tickled or stimulated that, that one gets from a Malcolm Gladwell book that that maybe has more to do with the feeling of what it is like to to have a a, a special perspective on things than it is with than the, like you're not really equipped with anything you that, that you didn't have before that's going to make your life different. It'll just change the 
way you talk about that at the neighborhood potluck. I love the neighborhood potluck. And now just to, to circle back to why you and I are specifically frustrated by a piece like this Jennifer Senior's piece. I think that that is more of the answer than what maybe you or I proposed earlier. It's that we see the um, writerly manipulations in this piece and say, and, and, and say like, this isn't, truth in a way that poetry or fiction lacks truth. It's just a different way of telling a story, but it gets to be called truth. It gets to be a part of our you know, history in a way that poetry and novels don't. And I think that I am uh, probably selfishly myopically perturbed by that distinction. So I, 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 there's, I want to talk a little bit more about fiction and nonfiction, but first, I, I, the, the, the most uncomfortable and shitty thought I had about this article that I'm curious to get your thought on is that there's, a, there's an element of it that feels, it feels not incidental that Bobby McIlvaney was, uh, was sort of a would-be Ivy League to New York elite. He was like, was was uh, he worked for Merrill Lynch in New York, and he he like came from a, a poorish working class uh, Pennsylvania family, and was the smartest. Boy, it's like like my wife was like the the, the smartest per person in her small town, you know, and like this it was this guy was sort of like he was the star, and he ascended. And they they there's even like a, to my mind like a sort of gross passage about like like it was so amazing that he was going to go to Princeton and he, it was like him becoming president and like all right, the teacher said, okay, now you start saving your pennies and the whole family needs to work together to see that he can ascend to his, his true place. There's a, there's an Helen usually starts by telling people that Bobby went to Princeton, but that's hardly because she's status fixated. Um, it's because she and Bob senior did not expect to have a child who went to an Ivy league school. They both went to state schools in Pennsylvania not even particularly well-known ones. Both of, their, both of their kids were sporty, but when Bobby was eight, his third grade teacher said to them, and they both remember her exact words, although, of course, according with these people, the exact words were probably different, uh, start saving your pennies, uh, in quotations. This one's education might cost you. Right. And so Jennifer Sr. says she knows Bobby McIlvaney because, or knew him because he happened to be sweet mates with her brother and then room and like close friends with her brother. So she and her brother also went to Princeton. And there's a, there is a, there was a part of this story that it felt like it wasn't, it wasn't incidental that these people who were mostly the subject of the story, the parents and their, their son, and uh, they are uh, non big city elites. They are non Ivy leaguers, Bobby and Jen senior and her brother and the perspective of the Atlantic is this elite perspective. And that like, that felt maybe like part of the question about how there's like a couple times where she like weirdly compared, like Bob senior, who like, like is reading about the, the, the evils of the CIA and like protest the war in, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and like became a, a like devoted, uh, a progressive activist because of his son. She like twice, 
pointedly compares him to Trump supporters in a way that just like it felt a little bit like this was the 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 kindly condescending illumination of the non elite by the uh by by the the ivy league certified new york media elite like that was a little like the feeling i had that i also felt like was was uncharitable and unfair for me to feel but i'm curious what what, what your take is on that uh no as, as as a member of the ivy league educated new york city <laughs> elite i can i can weigh in on that i think um, he's he's a perfect victim right like we we we're told um especially when black kids get shot by the police, that there's no such thing as, as the perfect victim. Um, but he really is the perfect victim. Like he, again, n- not only did he come from nothing, you know, but like, that's not true. Like he definitely came from like two educators, right? Like right. who went to college and had enough money to save and were excited to send him to Princeton. Um, and not only did he, did he, score those 14 points over Kobe Bryant. Sorry, he scored 16 points off Kobe Bryant that day. Um, But he went to Princeton, which is like the most obnoxious of all the Ivy League schools. (laughs) And he got a job in a finance company, right? But what he really wanted to do was become a novelist. So like he is perfect in every single possible way which you can feel some of the tension in the writing where either an editor told Jennifer Senior or Jennifer Senior found in her own mind, like the, the, the move to say like, it's getting a little bit too perfect. So listen to this paragraph, which is the only one in the piece that questions Bobby's perfection. When he arrived at college, Bobby retained a bit of an alpha, dolls, alpha dog streak. He was still competitive, even while playing mindless made up dorm games. He wasn't bashful about ribbing friends. He was tall and handsome and had a high level of confidence in his sense of style, which may or may not have been justified. So like the three things that that which may or may not have been justified caught my eye because it just it's so ambiguous and odd. Like, what is that doing in this piece? Like it. So he thought he dressed well. And I'm not going to say he didn't dress well. I'm going to tell you that. He might or might not have dressed well, implying that he didn't dress well. But like, what college freshman dresses well? Like, I mean, is that even like a category of person? So like the, the three things that are bad about him are he sometimes could be an alpha dog, which is a meaningless expression, right? He was competitive, even if the games were invented, and he thought he dressed well. So like, that is in this, in order, that, that, that paragraph exists in this piece in order to try to humanize him and make him less perfect, but it's unable to, right? He's perfect mm-hmm. even in trying to, to seek out imperfections. So the, the long um, answer is what I just gave. The short answer is yes, I, I feel like this is a special type of person where if his parents were Ivy League graduates and he were, um, an alumnus at Princeton, his loss wouldn't be mourned to to the same way. And if he hadn't gone to Princeton, his loss wouldn't be mourned in the same way. But this like American, pick yourself up by your your bootstraps, you're a magic, as you say, manic manic pixie dream boy character um, from the beginning. And 
although you know you need to make money because like money is what you do in these things, really what you want to be doing is writing novels. It lets everybody see themselves in this kid, whether you're poor or rich, a money man or a novel man, whether your family is a Trumpist or left-leaning, even though everyone in this piece appears to be left-leaning. Right. Like it's, it's a way to create, again, that, that cipher in the middle of the story where he's only a, a hero and you can read whatever heroic tendencies you want to into him. I'm sorry, not only that, but Toni Morrison wrote about this white kid. Two, that- wrote two. Oh, he was, yeah, what his real, there's a weird, his real passion was, was African-American studies. He Like that was his major. Right. And Toni Morrison and wrote after two letters. After the McIlvain, has got not one, but two condolence notes. So Toni Morrison, from Toni Morrison. So Toni Morrison wrote one note, presumably after the kid died. Um, Tony Morrison, a Princeton professor, right? And then the second one came, I guess there must have been a lag between when he died and when she read the term paper, or maybe upon realizing who this kid was, again, followed up or just needed to say, but he is not only a better basketball player than Kobe Bryant, but as a white kid, he, he wrote one of the most accomplished and insightful term papers in African-American culture that Toni Morrison has ever read. Um, and again, it, it, it's true. So I don't know why I'm in, my instinct is to be dismissive of it. So help me, help me figure out my own reaction to that. So like he, he, there's no way that Jennifer Senior, who's a, a wonderful journalist for the New York Times, she was the book critic for a while. Now she's sort of a critic at large. She writes these um, longer form pieces, this one for the Atlantic. Um, why does it bother me that she just says the truth about this kid, which is that he must have been really smart because they didn't, he wasn't a legacy to Princeton and he got in somehow. So like in some objective way, he was worthy of this fancy school. He must have been good at basketball because Kobe Bryant was on the other team and he scored all these points against them. He must have been uh, interested in, in African-American literature and culture because Tony Morrison wrote that it was insightful and accomplished. Like, so what is it that frustrates me in his perfection in, in us? Like, are we just jealous? Yeah, like, we're, we can't we're, be jealous of a dead kid. Can no, we? right. We're well. We are definitely we doubt it. We're skeptical, right? We, yeah, we, we don't believe he's as good as he's being presented to us as. And why is that? Is that because no one we've ever met in our lives was this good? Or, uh, yeah. I... So I, the, the passage you read about him having a, uh, a questionable sense of style and being an alpha dog and, and being competitive, th- th- I read that as a, as a paragraph that w- that appeared in lieu of quotes from some of his other sweet mates who said like, well, it's sad that Bobby died, but he was kind of an asshole. <laughs> like that, that's what I imagined, which like is definitely true of every single person. Like it's true of right, every especially person. freshman year of college. Of, oh my God. Yeah. Like that somebody who met you in college hates you. Like that's definitely true of every person who attended college or, you know, and so, so, and I, in a way, like I, I the other thing I thought about, cause she mentions he loved, he wanted to be a novelist and, and like he, he had so much writing on his desk and he can like, when he started working at Maryland, she still wanted to, to write novels. And he like first started in book publishing and he like had two novel drafts sitting on his <laughs> desk. But then like, 
nowhere does she actually she says at some point like oh he was sort of like you can feel that he's still a kid writing but then by the time he's 27 he's very mature no i in a way like i i I think my heart would have gone out to him only more if at some point she had said also i read his two novels and they were very bad like would have felt very true and i think part of what feels weird and, and not quite right about some of this is is not just that he's like a very very special boy but but that uh it also would have been sad if he were not a very special boy or like right. if he were a very special boy who also like had a dui and and like was really mean to one of his ex-girlfriends and like that also would be a terrible loss and would be inexplicable and would leave us with all these open wounds that it like it, in a way like part of the implication is that as you said like had he not had he been a janitor leaving the world trade center uh it wouldn't have been this the, there wouldn't be a halo surrounding the loss in this way uh but also and, well he, and also jennifer know, senior wouldn't have known him right which right, is the, right which is the other complicated right. aspect of of this piece where it's it, it can only be told in this voice by an atlantic author um i'm sure there are some atlantic authors who are friends with janitors but for, for the most part the the writers for the Atlantic who have access to people who died on 9-11 will have access to this type of kid. Um, but also what you said is, is helping me understand why I am frustrated by how extraordinary Bobby was, because I probably would have hated Bobby, right? If I, <laughs> if I went to school with him and there was this kid who was better than Kobe Bryant at basketball and was the best student Toni Morrison ever had and w- was a novelist, and was super competitive in dorm games that didn't matter and was making money for Merrill Lynch afterwards, but still was calling himself a novelist and who constantly told his parents how much he loved them. He was on the phone with them for hours every night, even though his friends were like, why are you talking to your mom so much, man? And who rehearsed in writing form how he was going to propose, I mean, how he's going to ask permission to his girlfriend's father, including the line, something like, I so admire you as the head of the family. And the the more I read about him, the more I realize that if I knew him, I think I would have really disliked him. And this piece doesn't allow him the humanity to be disliked, doesn't allow the reader the nuance to think of this kid as a human being, as opposed to as a saint or a martyr. Um, and, and maybe that's what frustrated me in, in reading it, is that inherent in so many of his positive characteristics, I guess, at least if we're talking about any human being I've ever met, would be like, he's probably intolerable in, in some ways, in, in many ways. Like I, Brian Platzer, probably would dislike this guy. Um, so maybe I just want to be allowed to, or, but, but why do I care about disliking a dead guy? It's so, who, the, the piece isn't even about him. It's about how his death turned his parents um, into different versions of themselves. But then I guess I would have liked to have real access into those different versions of, of the, the, the lives that he turned his parents in. The, the piece is more tantalizing than it is satisfying. And it was read as satisfying at least among the thousands of people within my Twitter retweet orbit. So I did do the Zoom reading 
uh, this past weekend, and it went very uh, well. And uh, Marianne and Frank were terrific, and the people who tuned in to to uh, watch and listen and ask questions, they were there's a good crowd and a really lovely response, uh, including a couple of Sleeve Rickets listeners. Uh, so I, I was uh, touched and and grateful, and I think it was, I think it went well. There was one question that came up that it was maybe it it caught my attention partly because I was thinking about this this interview, which I had actually recorded just that morning, and it, it was a question. I think Cameron actually asked a question about autobiography and invention or imagination, and it brought to mind for me at least the question of authenticity in the events of a poem or, or the, the authentic confession of a poem. Confessional poetry is is uh, lo- long past uh, fashionable and then you know absorbed into the mainstream and, and into the status quo. But there remains, readers remain interested in poems that seem to be about the poet's real life. And there is some power still in the really having happenedness of certain kinds of events in a poem. So as with the essay that Brian and I talked about this week, there it's not just a matter of the, the pure form of the story. It's not just a matter of the descriptions or the insights. There is something about how true to life we believe it to be that moves us, whether or not we're right whether or not we are whether or not our sense of reality is accurate that feeling is a significant part of our experience as readers in prose as well as in poetry so today i'm going to read a poem one of my really one of my just favorite poems i read a good little while ago a poem by Ashley Anna McHugh called The Unquarried Blue of Those Depths is All But Blinding. And that poem takes its title from a line in this poem that I'm going to read today, which is just called A Letter by Anthony Hecht. It is, <laughs> as with most of Hecht's poems, it, it, it is given mostly in a pretty high register with some highfalutin language in it, uh, but I think he is a master of tone and of uh, the, the quality of speech such that he is able to communicate a feeling of authenticity, even when using language that we might associate with a college classroom. Uh, so the, the poem, just to give you a little bit of, uh, just to give you your bearings, takes the form of a letter to somebody that the speaker of the poem, who we we suppose this to be Hecht, or I suppose it to be Hecht, but the speaker of the poem has had an affair with this woman. And that affair is over, and they are both married, and they are still both married. And so he is writing to her by not writing to her, because... Once upon a time, she gave some stuffed animals to his sons when they were kids. And just today, he happened to find them. And they brought everything back. So this is a letter by Anthony Hecht. 
I have been wondering what you are thinking about. And by now, suppose it is certainly not me. But the crocus is up, and the lark, and the blundering blood knows what it knows. It talks to itself all night like a sliding moonlit sea. Of course, it is talking of you. At dawn, where the ocean has netted its catch of lights, the sun plants one lithe foot on that spill of mirrors, but the blood goes worming through its warm Arabian nights, naming your pounding name again in the dark heart root. Who shall, of course, be nameless? Anyway, I should want you to know I have done my best, as I'm sure you have too. Others are bound to us, the gentle and blameless, whose names are not confessed in the ceaseless palaver. My dearest, the clear unquarried blue of those depths is all but blinding. You may remember that once you brought my boys two little woolly birds. Yesterday, the older one asked for you upon finding your thrush among his toys, and the tides welled about me, and I could find no words. There is not much else to tell. One tries one's best to continue as before, doing some little good. But I would have you know that all is not well, with a man dead set to ignore the endless repetitions of his own murmurous blood. I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on the poem because I think it's just a really lovely poem, but I do enjoy the perpetual tug of war between frankness and circumlocution that <laughs> this poem takes. He, he goes to great lengths to not to say explicitly what is happening with his body or what might once have happened with their bodies by uh, invoking the crocus and the lark and this elaborate metaphor of uh, subterranean water. But he also can't help but be called back simply to the blood again and again, which is uh, central not just to life, but of course to uh, sex in, in several different ways. And in fact, blood is the very last word of the poem. It's a poem partly about denial. He is very explicitly not naming this person. This is a secret. This is something not to be spoken of. After his long, elaborate apostrophe to her in the first two stanzas, he he drops he drops the metaphorical flourishes and says simply, "Who shall, of course, be nameless." He can't say her name. And, and then he, later in that same stanza, he invokes another kind of denial. He says, others are bound to us, the gentle and blameless, their, their spouses, presumably, their families, the people who would be hurt if all of this were to come out. Others are bound to us, the gentle and blameless, whose names are not confessed in the ceaseless palaver. This is not the same kind of confession as it would be if he named this woman. 
he's saying that in their own private reveries, in that ceaseless palaver of the heart, the names that are not confessed are the names of the innocent loved ones. It is exactly the wrong name that keeps coming back, that keeps insisting on being spoken. And of course, the poem as a whole is a sort of a tease, a flirtation with the possibility of authenticity, because if it is all mere invention, if, we, if it were explicitly, if it were acknowledged to be all mere invention, then it would lose some of its poignancy. The part of what makes us Part of what makes this poem sting is that it is not, uh, this is not the poem of a good guy. This is not the poem of someone who is himself gentle and blameless. This is the poem of someone who knows that he's in the wrong. But his feelings are genuine nonetheless. And if all of that is simply an invention, if it's all just made up for the sake of a neat poem, then that balance between our disapproval of his actions and our sympathy for his feelings, that balance becomes a little bit weightless, a little bit meaningless. That it is important that he not say what really happened, but it's also important that we sort of believe that something really happened. And he acknowledges at the end that this tug of war is not really sustainable. It's not really a balance. It's not really equal. That the poem is not articulating a, a stable or sustainable condition. It's just articulating a moment in that condition. He knows and he says, and he wants to make sure that she knows, although of course he's also not actually writing to her, I would have you know that all is not well with a man dead set to ignore the endless repetitions of his own murmurous blood. However true any of this is, however confected, however disciplined his performance, it's one that he can't keep up. Not for long. That was a letter by Anthony Hecht it appeared in his, I think, second book, The Hard Hours, a really extraordinary book. This is Slee Ricketts. Thank you so much for listening. With any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then.